Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Maggie Crowley. Maggie is the Director of Product Management at Drift. So Drift is a conversational marketing and sales platform that is one of the trailblazers of a new way for businesses to buy from other businesses. And a cool fun fact about Maggie, she's a former U.S. Olympian, so my first Olympian on the Product Love podcast. So Maggie and I talked a lot about the ways we talk to customers. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know I'm a big proponent of product managers talking to their customers like all the time. But there's just a lot of ways to do that now, right? From email to commercial products like Drift to interactions over social networks and of course the phone or in person. So Maggie and I, we both love these informal conversations. It's somewhere where we really find out more about the customer and their problem. You can get a, like, a sense of who they are, what they're thinking about, and what solution you can provide for them, right? This all got me to thinking, why do some of us find customer interviews such a daunting task, right? Why do people make it like a chore at times? Perhaps we're not framing the customer interviews correctly. It's not a task, it's a need. And it's not gonna dampen your mood, it's gonna motivate you. Maybe interviews aren't the right word for them either. They're more like conversations where both parties are learning. So I'd love to hear what you think. You can tweet at me at eBodic or email me at eBodic at pendo.io. And also ProductCraft, my sponsor, they have a conference coming up in May. It's a new kind of conference with labs, lounges, and lessons. It should be really cool. I hope to see you guys there. Check it out at productcraft.com. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with Maggie from Drift in their wonderful studio in Boston. Why don't we kick this off, Maggie, with us getting a little overview of your background? Sure. I started as an athlete for a long, long time. Didn't actually think I would ever get a real job, but life as a speed skater isn't one that I think you can really make a living off of. So like many people, I went into consulting right after school. Did that for a bunch of years, got an MBA, like many people who don't know what they want to do, do. And then that's when I discovered product. So I've been in product ever since. So talk to me first about your time as an Olympian and how you ended up on the product path. Yeah. You know, beyond, you know, just the, the consulting route. Mm -hmm. what, what inspired you about getting into product? Yeah, I think for me, when I was in business school, I was sort of trying to think about what roles were out there that were similar to consulting and that you got to do lots of different things. And it would be always interesting and always sort of fresh. And I was lucky enough to do an internship at Google. And I wasn't on the product team there, but that's when I got exposed to the, even the concept of what a product manager was. And I think at that point, I looked at that job and I said, well, you get to think about users. You get to think about building solutions for them. You get to work with engineering and design and the whole business. And that felt like the most interesting set of things I could be working on. And so I gave it a shot and I loved it. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So Talk to me about the time at the Olympics, the yep. time at, as an athlete in general. Mm -hmm. What skills did you take from athletics to product management? Yeah, it's a good question. For me, being an athlete, just playing sports was something that I loved doing, but being an Olympian is really mostly about luck and timing, like many things in life. I 
I started figure skating when I was three years old. I just loved doing it. I played hockey for a long time, and I kind of fell into speed skating. And I got lucky with finding a good coach and having some good success. But for me, I think the big thing about being an athlete was that I just loved I loved practicing, and I loved the aspect of getting better sort of incrementally and just perfecting that every single day. And to me, that experience is something that's carried over through the rest of my life, which is for, for a small sport athlete, like you're only ever on the spotlight every four years, but there's a lot that goes into that behind the scenes. In the same way that when you work in products, maybe you ship a big feature every once in a while, but there's a lot that's happening every single day, a lot of perfection and working in incremental steps. And so I think those two things really go hand in hand and are sort of a nice combination of skills. What about soft skills overlap? What do you think from, from being a, you know, a world-class athlete to being a product manager? What overlap is there there? You know, I wasn't on a team sport, so there weren't a lot of soft skills involved in the, the act of speed skating. But I think just being able to manage failure is something that happens a lot to an athlete. And I think, you know, you don't win all the races. You don't always have success. There's lots of setbacks. And so just the resilience and grit that you have to have to stick to something for that long and work that hard for that period of time, I think lends itself really well to the work that we do in really any job, but especially in product. So that's probably the best thing I learned from it. But again, I think it's just being willing to show up and grind yeah, every I was, single day. I was wondering if grit was going to come up because <laughs> yeah. that's the one that I first thought of. And I hear that from a lot of product leaders is that when they look to hire product people, they look mm-hmm. for that degree of grit because things just don't flow smoothly. The product managers don't always have and usually don't have the authority to kind of push through things. So there's a lot of negotiations that take place mm-hmm. and there needs to be that perseverance. And I could see the same thing as an athlete, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially at the level you were at. Yeah, and I think just being able to sort of accept the reality of the situation and then figure out what to do. There's not a lot, you know, I was a distance athlete and so you have enough time to kind of think about what's happening while you're racing. And, you know, there's many moments where you get into a race and it's just really going terribly and you still have a significant amount of time to sort of live with that while you're still racing. So I think just learning how to accept where you are and what's happening and then move past it is super important, especially, you know, if you're in the middle of a development cycle and something goes horribly wrong and you uncover a bug or, you know, whatever happens, just being able to roll with that is super important. So tell me what got you to drift. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I actually was working at, I don't know if I had left TripAdvisor yet, but I, I might've been working at another startup and I saw an article about this company in Boston that had raised this crazy Series A without even a product yet. And, you know, founded by this guy, David Cancel and Elias Torres. And I just sort of read the article and thought, you know, there's something interesting going on there. There's something interesting with these two people. You know, I want to kind of learn a little bit more about that. And it took maybe a year and a half from then to when I joined to kind of work my way in. But I just wanted to work with people who had such amazing product resumes and who I thought I could learn a lot from. And that's kind of how I made my way to Drift. So you picked out Drift and said, hey, I'm going to work there and then worked your way in over yeah, yeah. 18 months. I did, yeah. I think I had coffee with the our first PM, Matt. And we, they weren't hiring other product people at that time. And I was like, don't worry, just, just introduce me to your recruiter. Introduce me to Keith. So shout out Keith, who followed up with me maybe a year after that. So talk to me about your time here at Drift. Yeah, I started here almost a year ago. I was working on some of our integrations. And then I moved on to our bots and automations team. And that's the part of the product that I run now. 
And it's been incredible. It's just really interesting to see a company grow as fast as we have and to see what product market fit can really feel like and what happens once you get to that point and, and the kind of growth that you can have from that. And talk to me about that. How has the growth been here and how has that impacted your day-to-day job? Or- yeah, we had this woman, Molly Graham, come in earlier this year and she gave this amazing talk about, she was at Facebook, I think, when, when it scaled at the beginning. And she gave this really amazing talk about how when you're in a hyper-growth moment, the company is almost a completely different company every month to three months. And so it really has felt like over the course of the year that I've been here, every month or two, it's just a new, it's a new company with a new set of challenges and the, and the processes that we put in place before have sort of broken and we need to create new ones, which is, I think as a product person and someone who's interested in just organizational design, it's so interesting to be able to come in and just try it all again and try something new. So talk to me about successes. Can you share a success you've had with the product management team here? Sure. I think to me, it's easy to point to big things that we've shipped that have done well as successful, but and they, and they are. And there's a couple of examples. We launched this feature that's conversational landing pages a month or two ago, and that was a really amazing story of a couple of customers having a good idea, us just being flexible, jumping on it, making a prototype, building it, and having it do really well. So that was one sort of more traditional success. But I also really like to think about the little things that we do that are really successful, like going in and changing a feature that we know has been not as good as it could have been, but it's sort of complicated and hard and not very sexy and fixing that. Those to me are also really, really successful. So we, a couple months ago, we went in and we solved a thing that has just been bugging us for a really long time. And it was just a little tiny thing, but it felt so good to just like have that level of craftsmanship and be able to go back in and some stuff. I, I love solving the little things. Yeah. You're like in uh, this persistent little itch. It's not like yeah. a cut, you know, that you're right. stitching up, but there's this itch there that you just can't quite reach. And when it's finally gone, you're like, ha ah. Yeah. And I think we have, you know, we have a shipyard where we post all the new things that we ship. And we had this conversation about it's not even worth putting in there. And we're like, no, 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 like, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. And we put it in and everyone was super excited because it's it's been annoying all of us. And we finally just did something about it. So yeah, I love those little wins. So what about other challenges coming up at Drift and product management? Yeah, I think, like I mentioned, scale is something that is challenging for a team, especially figuring out how to go from just a couple of product managers to a full product team, adding leadership levels, and what does that look like? And we're always trying to find ways to build upon models from other companies who've done things successfully. So I think one of the biggest challenges has been how do we scale our team without losing the sort of autonomy and speed and what made us drift in the early days. So talk to me about the size of the team yeah. now. Yeah, I think we're up to 10 product people now, I think, if I counted right yesterday. Um, we probably have 40 or 50 engineers and maybe a little under 10 people on our design team as well. So and design works in the product org? Yeah, when we say product to Drift, we mean product management, design, and engineering. Okay. We're a strong believer in the three pieces all work together and all sort of sort of equal in that. And how um, are the teams structured? Yeah, we work in a pretty traditional, I think, squad model. Mm-hmm. So we have teams of three engineers, the tech lead, and two others. And then two of those make up a squad. And on a squad, there will be one product manager, one product designer. And then we also have this role called a customer advocate, which is sort of a customer support 
rep who is aligned with a given squad. And so they specialize in that set of features and they're on support chat all day long. They know exactly what's going on with customers and they really are part of how we get feedback really quickly. So six engineers in a squad, one designer, one PM, mm -hmm. uh, a customer advocate. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I think, and we, we try really hard to make the divisions between the squads very clear so that we have really autonomous, we can be autonomous and we don't have to have dependencies when we're building things, which means that everyone can run really fast. So now you talked about scaling products, so you're at mm -hmm. 10 now. What's, mm -hmm. what's the plan in the next, say, 12 months for the product team size? Yeah, we, who knows? We're just continuing to grow. But I think what we're trying to do is focus more on what do we need to build for our business and our customers, and then the product, the size of the product team and the scale comes from that. So rather than saying, oh, we want to grow the team to X, we're saying these are the things that we think we need to accomplish for our business and our customers, and so what kind of team do we need to get to get after that? Got it, got it. So I, I saw recently that you, you wrote a tweet about the worst feature you've ever shared. Yeah. Can, can you talk to me more about that? Yeah, I can. This was actually back in my days at, at TripAdvisor. I was on a I think it was the customer engagement. I can't remember exactly what we called it, but I was on one of the teams that was helping drive more reviews from the community. And we had this whole idea about how we were going to get more reviews and more engagement because we knew that if someone would do one review, they might do more. And we, we had done all this research, at least I thought, and all this work. I mean, we shipped this feature and we saw amazing results. I think reviews were up by a significant percent in this one little test that we ran. And... We did a couple of customer interviews because we wanted to understand if the thing we had thought we were doing was right. And it turns out that the feedback we got was, oh, yeah, I, um, you put in a big orange button, so I clicked on it. And we had done all of this research about the motivations behind why someone would want to write another review, and they just did it because we made this shiny orange button. So, I mean, the feature worked, but we were all like, we just wasted so much of our time. We could have just made the damn button orange in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But yeah, I think I learned, sorry, I was just going to say that I think I learned that you don't know what a user is going to do and you can't really predict it. And assuming you, that you truly know is just a recipe for failure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's always interesting when you look at the data. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And see what actually happens, what you think is going to happen and all the planning and analysis. You mm -hmm. Well, and even when the, the results are what you wanted, I think that was why that example has always stuck out to me is because it did what we wanted it to do. We set a numeric goal for percent increase in reviews and we hit it, but the reason why we hit it was not the right one. And so I, I would classify that as a, as a fail just because we didn't have the right, the reasoning behind it wasn't correct. I understand. So talk about other mistakes. You know, what do you see product managers making on a common basis, what type of mistakes, and how would you advise them to avoid those? Yeah, I like I mentioned, almost all of the mistakes that I've made in building has have come down to short-circuiting a part of the process, and I think specifically not doing the right amount of research to begin with, or not doing, not getting really in front of a customer and really getting their opinion on something. I think if you ever find yourself saying, oh yeah, customers are definitely going to do this or they're absolutely going to love this or this is how they're going to think. To me, that's always a warning sign if you don't have an actual example in front of you because it's so easy to start to confuse yourself with the user. And if, especially if you've worked on a product for a really long time, just assuming you know what's going to happen, it almost always turns into a bit of trouble. So I think that that's one big pitfall people can fall into and just not talking to customers enough. I mean, I think we all know we're supposed to do it, but actually doing the work to find them and talk to them is harder than it would seem. And then I think 
one thing I was talking about with our with our team recently was being trusting the rest of your team to solve problems and creating a space in which they can be part of the solution. I think especially new PMs I've seen fail because they try to get the team to build their solution rather than making a space where the team can make good decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I think trying so hard to almost manipulate the team into solving the problem the way that you want it to be solved is a really good way to build something that's probably okay, but maybe not the best it could be. Do you think that happens more with technical product managers, like product managers that, say, had written code in the past? Or do you think that happens across the board a lot? I think it happens across the board. I haven't actually worked with many technical product managers or, or PMs who have a background in engineering, I don't think. But I've just seen it in many different PMs. I think a lot of PMs have a more dominant personality or a really strong thesis on what they're building. And in that Usually that's a bit of a red flag or, you know, that's a, the type of person that might run into this problem. I mean, my, absolutely myself included. Yeah. I mean, PMs usually have a, a strong personality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We usually aren't shy about our opinions. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned talking to customers. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows we should do it, right? Yep. As product managers. Yep. How often do you guys talk to customers? How often do you personally? Yeah. We have a bit of a, a cheat because we have our software is a chat platform, and so yeah. it's easy for our customers when they're using our product to talk to us. So it makes it a lot easier for me to talk to a customer than I think maybe someone else. But I try to get on the phone with a customer, if not every day, at least every other day. But that means I'm joining calls with a customer success manager and their clients. I was on a sales demo yesterday, which was super fun. I love doing those. Oftentimes people, you mentioned Twitter, people will tweet at Drift, and we will just we're all on there. We'll respond and hop on the phone really quickly. I did one of those yesterday as well. So I just try to make myself available so that when there are customer conversations happening, I can jump on them. Because I think when you think about talking to customers as I need to go and schedule an interview, I think that can be really challenging and just feel like a lot of work. But there's just customers around all the time. And if you think about it that way, it's a little bit easier to kind of have those ad hoc conversations. And I try to always have one or two designs or concepts around that I can just pull up really quick and get some feedback on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of time just trying to get the scheduling done and perfect and put a process around it. And while I don't think that's bad, in a lot of cases tends to be a limiting process where you might have someone that, like you said, tweets at you. Right. And it's something interesting that you'd like to talk about. You can just reach out, send them a little Yeah, you can just talk to them. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. chat now? Or I've had conversations over Twitter DMs, you know, just yeah. going back and forth, uh, which is definitely interesting. Yeah, I think, obviously, you run, you run the risk of, you know, sometimes it's easier just to talk in person about some things that might not be super positive that come up on Twitter. But I think just being available to those chats that are happening is, is probably the best thing that you can do. And I think, to me, there's absolutely a place for formal user research. We're running some formal user research right now. But... Those informal conversations with customers, I find, are ones where you you really get a sense of who they are and what their problems are and what they're thinking about, which I think, as a product person, helps you build better things. Because if you really understand the person you're building for, what motivates them, what problems they're dealing with in their life, I think that makes for better products in general. So I love the informal stuff. Yeah, I do too. And I think there's a lot of opportunities. And obviously, you guys have your conversational yeah. <laughs> you know, you have drift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can obviously use that as a mechanism. Do you, do you chat with people a lot that way? I do, yeah. Usually what happens is the, the customer advocate that I mentioned earlier, if there's a customer who's currently chatting in, who's asking about something that I work on, every once in a while they'll pull me into that conversation. I'll hop in and help out. 
we also do chat duty. So today, after this, is my chat duty for the month. So I'll be on Drift support for an hour or so today, helping people out. And our whole company does that, every single role, which is funny at times. But yeah, we use Drift to chat with our customers constantly, which is, as a PM, it's just gold. It makes it so easy. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, just I talk to PMs that are like, they see tickets, they get all the tickets flowing through, and they're like, mm-hmm. I'd like to talk to this person mm-hmm. and use that as a mechanism. Because if someone's willing to open up a ticket, especially if you have a less expensive product, right. you know, they're willing to give you feedback. It's gold. You should reach out to it. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously with, with the business you have, who Drift is, you have that mechanism that not as many companies have, at least not that's ingrained as much as yeah. it is here at Drift. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit easier. And we have a culture that is all about being available and being human and being open and having conversations. And so it's just, it's really part of the team. And it's not just product managers. Our engineers are on the phone constantly with customers. We push them to be involved in those conversations as well, especially if someone built something. There's no reason for me to get on a support call with a customer. I'd rather have the engineer who worked on that feature help the customer out when they're trying to use it. And same with design. So it's the whole product team that's involved. So talk to me about features. What's worth building? What's not? What's Mm -hmm. your process as a product team around features? Yeah, I try really hard, and it's easier said than done, but I try really hard to think about not comparing features against each other, but instead comparing the problems that we can solve against each other and trying to think about... With competitors. No, I mean, just like when we sit down to think about what we should build next, rather than saying, oh, we could build feature A or feature B, what I try to think about is what outcome are we trying to drive for the customer? And then which is the most valuable outcome? And then what are the problems we could solve that would get us there fastest? So I think it makes it, when you're comparing features, it's really hard to make a value judgment because they're often solving different problems. But if you focus on which problem should we solve first, then I think it's a lot easier to figure out which features to build. And it becomes a less of like a, this is my favorite feature, your favorite feature, and we have to figure out who's to build first. And now you just have, this is my favorite problem to solve, and this is your favorite yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure that happens too, but I think it's a it's just an easier conversation to have when you're talking about, you know, I focus primarily on building for the marketer persona when I think about what do marketers need to be successful in their jobs and how can we help drive their metrics, then it's a little easier to think, well, we have all these different things we could do. This one, I think, is going to have the most impact on that outcome with whatever data I have than it's a little bit easier as a team to rally around that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So talk to me about hiring here at Drift and hiring mm-hmm. into the product group. I mean, other than getting out ahead and applying 18 months. Yeah, <laughs> yeah stalking, <laughs> casually stalking the company until they hire you. What, what skills and qualities do you look for in PMs? Yeah, I care. I think if you had asked me this question when I was interviewing for my first product role, I think my answer would have been, you know, really analytical, really just all about the sort of technical capabilities of, of a product manager and the, the sort of knowledge that they have to have. But now with more years of experience, I care a lot less about that and much more about flexibility, having a curious mindset and being, you know, wanting to learn a lot. I care a lot about no ego and being open to other people's ideas because I think, like we mentioned before, PMs who can't do that have a hard time building the right stuff. I also think more and more that your ability to communicate clearly and effectively and persuasively. I just think being able to tell a story and motivate a team around a problem that needs to be solved is 
absolutely critical to being a good PM. And I think you can learn a lot of the other stuff, but if you can be articulate, or if you can be articulate, yeah, it's not a word. <laughs> if you can be articulate and you can communicate clearly and tell good stories, then I think a lot of the other stuff will fall into place. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think uh, being a storyteller is important as a product mm-hmm. manager. And you mentioned something that I thought was interesting to bring up again. You talked about early that you have a lot of opinionated PMs. And mm-hmm. at the same time, you said it's very good not to have an ego. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think those conflict, but they're definitely a, a balance, right? Absolutely. You have people that yeah. are, are willing to voice their opinion, mm-hmm. but at the same time aren't going to be obstinate. Right. It's that, yeah, absolutely. It's that strong opinions, loosely held thing, whoever said that. I think being able to have an opinion and make a decision and be decisive and lead a team is really important as a PM, but you have to be open to other people having better ideas than you. And in fact, I think it's actually your job as a product person to uncover those ideas in your teammates because Tiran, one of our directors of engineering here, made a really good point that especially engineers are creative problem solvers. You know, they're not just in a corner coding. They're solving problems all day long, and so they're by nature really creative people. And so involving them in your process and being open to their ideas is absolutely critical So I think building a good product. And so as a PM, if you have too much ego and you think that you're right all the time, you're not going to listen. And if you're not listening, then you're not going to get those ideas. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about product principles. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have product principles here at Drift, and what are they? We have company principles, and I think those principles are probably also our product principles. I'm sure David and Elias probably have product principles that they think about, but when I think about principles at Drift, it's our leadership principles, which are things like put the customer at the center of everything that you do, bias for action, scrappy and frugal. Of course, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. But those are the ones that I think about a lot when we're building for building for a customer or we're building something. We'll say things like, we have to have a bias for action. You know, we seek feedback, not consensus. And, you know, I'm just going to make this decision. You know, I heard you. We're going to disagree and commit. Or when we're trying to decide what we should do, we say things like, all right, what's the best option for the customer? And that's how we make our decisions. So our leadership principles as a company are really how we also build what we do. And then I think... Probably just taking a step back and thinking about product in general, I always try to think about being human in what we build and being simple and clear and not overthinking things. It's easy as a product manager to fall in love with your features and think that they're really special, but just making sure that everything you do is easily understood by your customers, is simple, is human, and maybe ideally has a little bit of magic to it would be my favorite way to build. And now, are those principles similar to core values? Is that how... The leadership principles, yeah, I would say that our core values are, are very similar to our leadership principles, if not the same thing. And what's nice about the way or what's effective about the way that we do that is that it's truly the way our whole company operates. So it's not, I think core values to me are sound like one of those things that you, you join a company and they're like, we have core values of humility and being a good person. And I, they're always really fluffy and, and sort of not directly connected to the work that you do. Whereas our leadership principles are tangible things. We actually have, I should have brought them, we have cards on all of our desks that have all eight of them and you can reference them and use them. And we, they're living things that we use to make decisions. So to me, I like that style of thinking more than like a core value. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I think it's how it's imposed, right? I mean, yeah. our, our core values uh, where I work at Pendo. Uh, outside of this lovely product cap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
are very much how you treat your product principles, right? Mm -hmm. Customer focused or things similar yeah. to the principle you have. Yeah, yeah. A biased act is actually one of ours. Transparency can technically be transparent, yep. which is we, how we manage communications in general from mm -hmm. the utmost levels, mm -hmm. you know, like sharing board decks, you know, down yeah. to the lower levels, freedom of responsibility, you know, those types of core values. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I think we stole half ours from Amazon. I'm sure <laughs> you, like we all did kind of. We so. spent a lot of time. It was yeah. early, early on going through those. It's very interesting. You know, it was yeah. the final one where I think I covered all the last one being data driven. Yep. So I skipped one, uh, which makes a lot of sense given what, what Pendo does. Right. Uh, you can call it data inspired, informed. Yeah. I, I, I've been joking. It's data based. Data based. Yeah. I think yeah, that's. Do you, get, do you get the joke? Data based. Oh, good one. Yeah. Took me a second. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's a very subtle joke <laughs> yeah, there. Subtle. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. Yeah, I think that's – I love this model of working. I'd never done it before. But being able to have – I think really the value that they bring to me in my day-to-day -day, tactically is giving us a way, giving the team a way to have – to make decisions and have a conversation and solve conflict without it being personal. Because being able to point to a leadership principle or use a leadership principle – in a discussion or decision means that it's like you don't have to say, hey, Eric, I don't, I just disagree with you. I don't want to do the thing that you told me to do or I think your idea is dumb. You can be like, this is really good feedback, but I'm the DRI for this decision and I'm just going to make it. We don't have to have consensus right now. Great. So let's, let's talk about what you see coming up in the future. Tell me about uh, upcoming trends you see in product management. Yep. So this is exactly a question I've been asking everyone on our podcast, which is, what are the new things that are coming up and the new ways of thinking that people have? And I haven't been getting a good answer on this question because I think it was someone who said that the biggest problem we have is still that we're not talking to customers enough, which is really interesting because you'd think that we were, we were all doing enough of that to be, have moved past it. But I think you, you already actually mentioned it. The one thing that I've heard a lot about is rather than being totally qualitative or super, super data intensive, people using data sort of in the middle and being data informed or data based, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> but I think figuring out the right amount of information to use, and I have worked in teams that are exclusively using tests and data thresholds to build, and I've worked on teams that use almost no, don't have any data, and it's all qualitative feedback, and figuring out where that middle ground is and what the right amount, I think, is something that I'm hearing more and more of. And then the other thing that's on my mind a lot is the way that people are constructing their product process these days is a little different and people are letting go of, obviously there was the whole waterfall thing and then we moved hard to agile, but now people are sort of stepping back from that a little bit and thinking more about what's the right process for their team. And I'm hearing less and less about strict processes and more and more about being flexible and teams creating their own process that works for them and helps them ship fast. So I feel like those are some themes that are sort of bubbling up within the product community. Yeah, I, I can definitely see some of those. And whether you're you know, informed or driven, I think the idea is like on the data side is it's important to have data. Mm -hmm. you know, there's no excuse for not having data. Right. It doesn't mean you need to blindly follow mm -hmm. data. I mean, data is there to be interpreted. It's there to make you think. It's there to maybe lead to different experiments right. or prove or disprove some hypothesis you have. But, you know, it's not something that, you know, you need to be a drone now as a product manager. Right. Yeah, and I think it's easy once you have a lot of data, especially back when I worked at TripAdvisor, we had tons and tons of data. So it was so easy to make decisions based on it, and it was, relatively speaking, so much harder to go talk to a customer. 
that we ended up making a lot of our decisions based on data when I think we would have been better served talking to more customers. And so I think having that good balance is just, it's hard to do, but it's super important. And those customer conversations really are data, especially if they're documented Right, well. yeah, true. So, I, I mean, I, but I completely agree. I, it, it always amazes me when you say, yeah, we talk, I, I, I ask a product manager, they're like, we talk to customers a lot. And I was like, well, that means to find a lot. Mm -hmm. like, usually at least once a week, you know, and then other people are like three times a day. Yeah. And there's a big difference between usually once a week, which sounds right. like more every other week, yeah. to like three times a day. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot is one of those terms that yeah. you find many different ways. Yeah, and I also feel like you can... I see it in the quality of the work that I'm doing. If I haven't been talking to customers enough, I can even feel myself start to make bad choices and bad decisions. And that's usually a warning sign for me that I need to go back in and talk to some customers and refresh my memory. Because just even a week or even if you went two weeks without talking to someone based on the stuff that you're working on, I think that's probably a bad idea. Yeah, I would agree with you. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about you. Yeah. Uh, what's Great. your favorite product and why? I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I thought about it this morning. I had two that I'm bringing, a software and a non-software. This one always seems to be one of the hardest questions, even when people know it's coming. Oh, no. I, I feel very strongly about these two products. One is this to-do app, I guess, called Workflowy. It's probably the one thing in the to-do productivity space I've used for the longest. I've probably been using it since it came out many years ago. And it's a really simple bulleted list that you can kind of collapse and nest and check things off and has lots of functionality I don't even use. I It's free, but I choose to pay for it because I love it so much. And it's the only to-do app that I've ever used that just works simply. It does exactly what I want it to do, and it's easy. I love it. I would Everyone should use it. It's amazing. I should check it out because I always, I, I'm always struggling to find a to-do app that's workflowy. And I guess by definition, by their name, it is. this one should be. Yeah, it's amazing. And I have sections for basically my entire life in it. And you can just put together a workflow, obviously. Yeah. And you can say, oh, the first step, I can't do my second step until this is done. And Yeah, it's amazing. I highly recommend it. And it's just, it's not flashy. It doesn't have any special, clever, gestural things. It's just simple. It's a list, and it works, which I love. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. And then my, my second one, which is a hardware product, we just, my husband and I just bought a Vitamix, which is the greatest blender of all time, and it's just absolutely phenomenal, and we are obsessed with it. It's awesome. I, I know I have a blender. It's not a Vitamix. So yeah, you don't you don't know what you're missing. It's really it's <laughs> yes, absolutely yes. incredible. I have a wonderful <laughs> blender that I think is great. What makes the Vitamix so much better? It blends things more aggressively than I knew was possible. So what's everyone better? at Drift is sick of me talking about my Vitamix. <laughs> no, I'm, but I'm sure interested. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to talk about your Vitamix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What type of aggressive blending do you do? I mean, we... Especially things you couldn't do before. Yeah, I think I watched my husband make a smoothie this morning, and he just took... By the way, I'm now thinking of those knives commercials. Where Definitely, yeah, where they like just, like, blend the knives. Yeah. yeah. He chopped off a section of ginger, didn't peel it, and just dropped the whole thing. And he dropped the whole apple in, just core, seeds, the whole thing. And it just comes out like a super smooth smoothie. It's amazing. And still tasty. Yeah. It's good to know. It's, it's not affordable. Super powerful. Not affordable, blender. but extremely you don't powerful. Have to do any of the prep. You're no, yeah, it's there, amazing. Like, yeah, just like tossing vegetables and it's great. Yeah. yeah. The apples are falling off the tree right into the vegetables. Yeah, mix pretty much. Yeah. Awesome. But I think just like all kidding aside, those two products to me are successful because they do exactly what they say they're going to do really well. Yeah. Like, I mean, workflowy is right in the name. Right. It's just like, it's a to-do list that works. 
The Vitamix is a lender that does exactly what it says it's gonna do. And there's just something nice about buying a product that just does exactly what you think it's gonna do with no confusion. And we need to change the Vitamix name now to blend anything. Yeah, yeah, no, that should be their tagline. Then we'll, we'll all be there. Yeah. Well, I might have to experiment with that when, the, when I run this blender down to nothing, go with the Vitamix for the next one. Highly recommend. And everyone at Drift now has one? No, I think they're just sick of me talking about mine <laughs> and walking around with my smoothies. To give them the fantastic smoothies to convince them? Absolutely not. Oh. It's mine. So one final question for yeah. you today. Three words to describe yourself. I thought about this one a lot. I think the three words that I would describe myself as and that people would probably agree with are focused, intense, and irreverent. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you. This is yeah. wonderful. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.